Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? So this is The Shining Pyramid by Arthur Macken. Haunted, you said? Yes, haunted. Don't you remember when I saw you three years ago, you told me about your place in the west with the ancient woods hanging all about it and the wild domed hills and the ragged land? It's always remained a sort of enchanted picture in my mind as I sit on my desk and hear the traffic rattling in the street in the midst of whirling London. But when did you come up? Fact is, Dyson, I've only just got out of the train. I drove to the station early this morning and caught the 10.45. Well, I'm very glad you looked in on me. How have you been getting on since we last met? There's no Mrs. Vaughan, I suppose? No, said Vaughan, I'm still a hermit, like yourself. I have done nothing but loaf about. Vaughan had lit his pipe and sat in the elbow chair, fidgeting and glancing about him in a somewhat dazed and restless manner. Dyson had wheeled round his chair when his visitor entered and sat with one arm fondly reclining on the desk of his bureau and touching the litter of manuscript. Are you still engaged in that old task, said Vaughan, pointing to the pile of papers and the teeming pigeonholes. Yes, the vain pursuit of literature, as idle as alchemy and as entrancing. But you've come to town for some time, I suppose. What shall we do tonight? Well, I, I rather wanted you to try a few days with me down in the West. It would do you a lot of good, I'm sure. Ah, you're very kind, Vaughan. But London in September is hard to leave. Doré could not have designed anything more wonderful and mystic than Oxford Street, as I saw it the other evening, the sunset flaming, the blue haze transmuting the plain street into a road far in the spiritual city. I should like you to come down, though. You would enjoy roaming over our hills. Does this racket go on all day and night? It quite bewilders me. I wonder how you can work through it. I'm sure you would revel in the great peace of my old home among the woods. Vaughan lit his pipe again and looked anxiously at Dyson to see if his inducements had had any effect. But the man of letters shook his head, smiling, and vowed in his heart a firm allegiance to the streets. You cannot tempt me, he said. Well, you may be right. Perhaps, after all, I was wrong to speak of the peace of the country. There, when a tragedy does occur... It's like a stone thrown into a pond. The circles of disturbance keep on widening, and it seems as if the water would never be still again. Have you ever had any tragedies where you are? I can hardly say that, but I was a good deal disturbed about a month ago by something that happened. It, it may or may not have been a tragedy in, in the usual sense of the word. What was the occurrence? Well... The fact is a girl disappeared in a way which seems highly mysterious. Her parents, people of the name of Trevor, are well-to-do farmers, and their eldest daughter, Annie, was a sort of village beauty. She was really remarkably handsome. One afternoon she thought she would go and see her aunt, a widow who farms her own land, and as the two houses are only about five or six miles apart, she started off, telling her parents she would take the shortcut over the hills. She never got to her aunt's. 
and she was never seen again. That's putting it in a few words. What an extraordinary thing! I, I suppose there are no, no disused mines, are there, on the hills? I don't think you quite run to anything so formidable as a precipice. No. The path the girl must have taken had no pitfalls of any description. It's just a track of a wild bare hillside, far even from a by-road. One may walk for miles without meeting a soul, but it's perfectly safe. And what do people say about it? Oh, they talk nonsense, even among themselves. You have no notion as to how superstitious English cottages are in out-of-the-way parts like mine. They're as bad as the Irish, every whit, and even more secretive. But what do they say? Oh, the poor girl is supposed to have gone with the fairies, or to have been taken by the fairies. Such stuff, he went on. One would laugh if it were not for the real tragedy of the case. Dyson looked somewhat interested. Yes, he said, fairies certainly strike a little curiosity on the ear these days. But, but, but what do the police say? I presume they do not accept the fairy tale hypothesis. No, but they seem quite at fault. What I am afraid of is that Annie Trevor must have fallen in with some scoundrels on her way. Castletown is a large seaport, you know, and some of the worst of the foreign sailors occasionally desert their ships and go on the tramp up and down the country. Not many years ago, a Spanish sailor named Garcia murdered a whole family for the sake of plunder that wasn't worth sixpence. They're hardly human, some of these fellows, and I'm dreadfully afraid the poor girl must have come to an awful end. But no foreign sailor was seen by anyone about the country. No, there's certainly that. And of course, country people are quick to notice anyone whose appearance and dress are a little out of the common. Still, it seems as if my theory were the only possible explanation. There are no data to go upon, said Dyson thoughtfully. There was no question of a love affair or anything of the kind, I suppose. Oh, no, not a hint of such a thing. I I'm sure if Annie were alive, she would have contrived to let her mother know of her safety. No doubt, no doubt. Still, it's barely possible that she is alive and yet unable to communicate with her friends. But all this must have disturbed you a great deal. Yes, it did. I hate a mystery, and especially a mystery which is probably the veil of horror. But frankly, Dyson, I want to make a clean breast of it. I didn't come here to tell you all of this. Of course not, said Dyson, a little surprised at Vaughan's uneasy manner. You came to have a chat on more cheerful topics. No, I did not. What I've been telling you happened about a month ago, but something which seems likely to affect me more personally has taken place within the last few days. And to be quite plain... I came up to town with the idea that you might be able to help me. You recollect that curious case you spoke to me about in our last meeting, something about a, a spectacle maker? Oh yes, I remember that. I know I was quite proud of my acumen at the time. Even to this day the police have no idea why those peculiar yellow spectacles were wanted. But Vaughan, you really look quite put out. I hope there's nothing serious. No, I think I've been exaggerating, and I want you to reassure me, but 
What has happened? It's very odd. And what has happened? I'm sure you laugh at me, but, but this is the story. You must know, if there is a path, a right of way, that goes through my land, and to be precise, close to the wall of the kitchen garden. It's not used by many people. A woodman now and again finds it useful, and five or six children who go to school in the village pass twice a day. Well, a few days ago, I was taking a walk about the place before breakfast, and I happened to stop to fill my pipe just by the large doors in the garden wall. The wood, I must tell you, comes to within a few feet of the wall, and the track I spoke of runs right in the shadow of the trees. I thought the shelter from a brisk wind was blowing rather pleasant, and I stood there smoking with my eyes on the ground. Then something caught my attention. Just under the wall, on the short grass, a number of small flints were arranged in a pattern, something like this. And Mr. Vaughan caught at a pencil and a piece of paper and dotted down a few strokes. You see, he went on, there were, I should think, twelve little stones neatly arranged in lines and spaced at equal distances, as I have shown it on the paper. They were pointed stones, and the points were very carefully directed one way. Yes, said Dyson, without much interest. Uh, no doubt when the children you have mentioned have been playing there on their way from the school, uh, children, as you know, are very fond of making such devices with oyster shells or flints or flowers or with whatever comes in their way. So I thought. I just noticed these flints were arranged in a sort of pattern and then went on. But the next morning I was taking the same round, which, as a matter of fact, is habitual with me. And again I saw at the same spot a device in flints. This time it was really a curious pattern. Something like the spokes of a wheel, all meeting at a common centre. And this centre formed a device which looked like a bowl. All, you understand, done in flints. You're right, said Dyson. That seems odd enough. Still... It's reasonable that your half a dozen school children are responsible for these fantasies in stone. Well, I thought I would set the matter at rest. The children passed the gate every evening at half past five, and I walked by at six and found the device just as I had left it in the morning. The next day I was up and about at quarter to seven, and I found the whole thing had been changed. There was a pyramid outlined in flints upon the grass. The children I saw going by an hour and a half later, and they ran past the spot without glancing to right or left. In the evening, I watched them going home, and this morning, when I got to the gate at six o'clock, there was a thing like a half-moon waiting for me. So, then, the series runs thus. Firstly ordered lines, then the device of the spokes and the bowl, then the pyramid, and finally this morning, the half-moon. That's the order, isn't it? Yes, that's right. But do you know, it's made me feel very uneasy. I suppose that seems absurd. But I can't help thinking that some kind of signalling is going on under my nose and that sort of thing is disquieting. 
But what have you to dread? You have no enemies. No, but I have some valuable old plate. You think you're burglars, then, said Dyson, with an accent of considerable interest. But you must know your neighbours. Are there any suspicious characters about? Not that I'm aware of. But you remember what I told you of the sailors. Can you trust your servants? Oh, perfectly. The plate is preserved in a strong room. The butler, an old family servant, alone knows where the key is kept. There's nothing wrong there. Still, everybody is aware that I have a lot of old silver, and all country folks are given to gossip. In that way, information may have got abroad in very undesirable quarters. Yes, but I confess there seems something a little unsatisfactory in the burglar theory. Who is signalling to whom? I cannot see my way to accepting such an explanation. What put the plate in your head in connection with these flint signs, or whatever one may call them? It was the figure of the bowl, said Vaughan. I happen to possess a very large and very valuable Charles II punch bowl. The chasing is quite exquisite, and the thing is worth a lot of money. The sign I described to you was exactly the same shape as my punch bowl. A queer coincidence, certainly, but the other figures or devices, uh, you have nothing shaped like a pyramid. Ah, you think that queerer. As it happens, this punch bowl of mine, together with a set of rare old ladles, is kept in a mahogany chest of a, a pyramidal shape. The four sides slope upwards, the narrow towards the top. I confess, all this interests me a good deal, said Dyson. Let us go on, then. What about the other figures? How about the army, as we may call the first sign, and the crescent, or half-moon? Uh, there's no reference that I can make out of these two. Still, you see, I have some excuse for curiosity at all events. I should be very vexed to lose any of the old plate. Nearly all of the pieces have been in my family for generations. And I can't get it out of my head that some scoundrels mean to rob me and are communicating with one another every night. Frankly, said Dyson, I can make nothing of it. I am as much in the dark as yourself. Your theory seems certainly the only possible explanation. And yet the difficulties are immense. He leaned back in his chair and the two men faced each other, frowning and perplexed by so bizarre a problem. Uh, by the way, said Dyson, after a long pause, what's your geological formation down there? Mr Vaughan looked up, a good deal surprised by the question. Um, old red sandstone and limestone, I believe, he said. We're just beyond the coal measures, you know. But surely there are no flints either in the sandstone or the limestone. No, I never see any flints in the fields. I confess that did strike me as a little curious. I should think so. It's very important. By the way, what size were the flints used in making these devices? I happen to have brought one with me. I took it this morning. From the half moon? Exactly. Here it is. He handed over a small flint, tapering to a point 
and about three inches in length. Dyson's face blazed up with excitement as he took the thing from Vaughan. Certainly, he said after a moment's pause, you have some curious neighbours in your country. I hardly think they can harbour any designs on your punch bow. Do you know, this is a flint arrowhead of vast antiquity. And not only that, but an arrowhead of a unique kind. I have seen specimens from all parts of the world, but there are features about this thing that are quite peculiar. He laid down his pipe and took out a book from the drawer. We shall just have time to catch the 5.45 to Castletown, he said. Part 2. The Eyes on the Wall Mr Dyson drew in a long breath of the air of the hills and felt all the enchantment of the scene about him. It was very early morning and he stood on the terrace in the front of the house. Vaughan's ancestor had built on the lower slope of a great hill in the shelter of a deep and ancient wood that gathered on three sides about the house, and on the fourth side, the southwest, the land fell gently away and sank to the valley, where a brook wound in and out in mystic esses, and the dark and gleaming alders tracked the stream's course to the eye. On the terrace, in the sheltered place, no wind blew, and far beyond, the trees were still. Only one sound broke in upon the silence, and Dyson heard the noise of the brook singing far below, the song of clear and shining water rippling over the stones, whispering and murmuring as it sank to dark, deep pools. Across the stream, just below the house, rose a grey stone bridge, vaulted and buttressed, a fragment of the Middle Ages, and then, beyond the bridge, the hills rose again, vast and rounded like bastions, covered here and there with dark woods and thickets of undergrowth. But the heights were all bare of trees, showing only grey turf and patches of bracken, touched here and there with the gold of fading fronds. Dyson looked to the north and south, and still he saw the wall of the hills and the ancient woods, and the stream drawn in and out between them all grey and dim, with morning mist beneath a grey sky in a hushed and haunted air. Mr Vaughan's voice broke in upon the silence. I thought you'd be too tired to be about so early, he said. I see you're admiring the view. It's very pretty, isn't it? Though I suppose old Mayrig Vaughan didn't think much about the scenery when he built the house. A queer grey old place, isn't it? Yes, and how it fits into the surroundings. It seems of a piece with the grey hills and the grey bridge below. I'm afraid I've brought you down on false pretenses, Dyson, said Vaughan, as they began to walk up and down the terrace. I have been to the place, and there's not a sign of anything this morning. Ah, indeed. Well, suppose we go round together. They walked across the lawn and went by a path through the ilex shrubbery to the back of the house. There Vaughan pointed out the track leading down to the valley and up to the heights above the wood, and presently they stood beneath the garden wall by the door. Here, you see, it was, said Vaughan, pointing to a spot on the turf. 
I was standing just where you are now this morning when I first saw the flints. Yes, quite so. That morning, it was the army, as I call it, then the bowl, then the pyramid, and yesterday, the half moon. What a queer old stone that is, he went on, pointing to a block of limestone rising out of the turf just beyond the wall. It looks like some sort of dwarf pillar, but I suppose it's natural. Oh, oh yes, I think so. I imagine it was brought here, though, as we stand on the old red sandstone. No doubt it was used as a foundation stone for some older building. Very likely. Dyson was peering about him attentively, looking from the ground to the wall and from the wall to the deep wood that hung almost over the garden and made the place dark, even in the morning. Look here, said Dyson at length. It's certainly a case of children this time. Look at that. He was bending down and staring at the dull red surface of the mellowed bricks of the wall. Vaughan came up and looked hard where Dyson's finger was pointing and could scarcely distinguish a faint mark in deeper red. What is it? he said. I, I can make nothing of it. Look a little more closely. Don't you see? It's an attempt to draw the human eye. Ah, now I see what you mean. My sight is not very sharp. Yes, so it is. It's meant for an eye, no doubt, as you say. I thought the children learnt drawing at school. Well, it's an odd eye enough. Do you notice the peculiar almond shape? Almost like the eye of a Chinaman. Dyson looked meditatively at the work of an undeveloped artist and scanned the wall again, going down on his knees in the minuteness of his inquisition. I should like very much, he said at length, to know how a child in this out-of-the-way place can have any idea of the shape of the Mongolian eye. You see, the average child has a very distinct impression of the subject. He draws a circle, or something like a circle, and puts a dot in the centre. I don't think any child imagines that the eye is really made like that. It's just a convention of infantile art. But this almond-shaped thing puzzles me extremely. Perhaps it may be derived from a gilt Chinaman on a tea canister in a grocer's shop. Still, that's hardly likely. But why are you so sure it was done by a child? Why, uh, look at the height. These old-fashioned bricks are little more than two inches thick. There are twenty courses from the ground to the sketch, if we call it so. That gives the height of uh, three and a half feet. Now, just imagine you're going to draw something on this wall. Exactly. Your pencil, if you had one, would touch the wall somewhere on the level with your eyes. That is, more than five feet from the ground. It seems, therefore, a very simple deduction to conclude that this eye on the wall was drawn by a child about ten years old. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. Of course, one of the children must have done it. I suppose so. And yet, as I said, there's something singularly unchildlike about these two lines. And the, the eyeball itself, you see, it's almost an oval. To my mind, the thing has an odd, ancient air. And a touch that is not altogether pleasant. I can't help fancying 
that if we could see the whole face from the same hand, it would not be altogether agreeable. However, that is nonsense, after all, and we're not getting farther in our investigations. It's odd that the Flint series has come to such an abrupt end. The two men walked away towards the house, and as they went in at the porch, there was a break in the grey sky and a gleam of sunshine on the grey hill before them. All that day, Dyson prowled meditatively about the fields and woods surrounding the house. He was thoroughly and completely puzzled by the trivial circumstances he proposed to elucidate, and now he again took the flint arrowhead from his pocket, turning it over and examining it with deep attention. There was something about the thing that was altogether different from the specimens he'd seen at the museums and private collections. The shape was of a distinct type, and around the edge there was a line of little punctured dots, apparently a suggestion of ornament. Who thought Dyson could possess such things in so remote a place? And who, possessing the flints, could have put them to the fantastic use of designing meaningless figures under Vaughan's garden wall? The rank absurdity of the whole affair offended him unutterably, and as one theory after another rose in his mind only to be rejected, he felt strongly tempted to take the next train back to town. He had seen the silver plate, which Vaughan treasured, and had inspected the punch bowl, the gem in the collection, with close attention. And what he saw, and his interview with the butler convinced him, that a plot to rob the strong box was out of the limits of inquiry. The chest in which the bowl was kept, a heavy piece of mahogany, evidently dating from the beginning of the century, was certainly strongly suggestive of a pyramid. And Dyson was at first inclined to the inept manoeuvres of the detective, but a little sober thought convinced him of the impossibility of the burglary hypothesis, and he cast wildly about for something more satisfying. He asked Vaughan if there were any gypsies in the neighbourhood, and heard that the Romany had not been seen for years. This dashed him a good deal, and he knew the gypsy habit of leaving queer hieroglyphics on the line of march, and had been much elated when the thought had occurred to him. He was facing Vaughan by the old-fashioned half when he put the question and leaned back in his chair in disgust at the destruction of his theory. It's odd, said Vaughan, but the gypsies never trouble us here. Now and then the farmers find traces of fires in the wildest part of the hills, and nobody seems to know who the firelighters are. Surely that looks like gypsies. No, not in such places as those. Tinkers and gypsies and wanderers of all sorts stick to the roads and they don't go very far from the farmhouses. Well, I can make nothing of it. I saw the children going by this afternoon and, as you say, they ran straight on. So we shall have no more eyes on the wall at any events. No, I must waylay them one of these days and find out who is the artist. The next morning... When Vaughan strolled in his usual course from the lawn to the back of the house, he found Dyson already awaiting him by the garden door, and evidently in a state of high excitement, 
We beckoned furiously with his hand and gesticulated violently. What is it? asked Paul. The flints again. No, but look here, look at the wall, there, don't you see it? There's another of those eyes. Exactly. Drawn, you see, at a little distance from the first, almost on the same level, but, but slightly lower. What on earth is one to make of it? it? It couldn't have been done by the children. It wasn't there last night, and they won't pass for another hour. What can it mean? I think the very devil is at the bottom of all of this, said Dyson. Of course, one cannot resist the conclusion that these infernal almond eyes are to be set down to the same agency as the devices in the arrowheads, and where that conclusion is to lead us is more than I can tell. For my part, I have to put a strong check on my imagination, or it would run wild. Vaughan, he said, as they turned away from the wall, has it struck you that there is one point, a very curious point, in common between the figures done in flints and the eyes drawn on the wall? What is that? asked Vaughan, on whose face there had fallen a certain shadow of infinite dread. It's this. We know that the signs of the army, the bowl, the pyramid, and the half-moon must have been done at night. Presumably, they were meant to be seen at night. Well, precisely the same reasoning applies to those eyes on the wall. I don't quite see your point. Oh, oh, surely, the nights are dark just now and have been very cloudy, I know, since I came down. Moreover, those overhanging trees would throw that wall into deep shadow, even on a clear night. Well? What struck me was this. What very peculiarly sharp eyesight they, whoever they are, must have to be able to arrange arrowheads in intricate order in the blackest shadow of the wood and then draw the eyes on the wall without a trace of bungling or a false line. I have read of persons confined in dungeons for many years who have been able to see quite well in the dark, said Vaughan. Yes, said Dyson. There was the Abbey in Monte Cristo, but that's a singular point. Part three, search for the bowl. Who was that old man that just touched his hat to you just now, said Dyson, as they came to the bend of the lane near the house. Oh, that was old Trevor. Looks very broken, poor old fellow. Uh, who's Trevor? Don't you remember, I, I told you the story that afternoon I came to your rooms about a girl named Annie Trevor who disappeared in the most inexplicable manner about five weeks ago. That was her father. Oh, yes, yes, I recollect now. To tell the truth, I'd for forgotten all about it. And nothing has been heard of the girl. Nothing, whatever. The police are quite at fault. I'm afraid I didn't pay very much attention to the details you gave me. Which way did the girl go? 
Her path would take her right across those wild hills above the house. The nearest point in the track must be about two miles from here. Is it near that little hamlet I saw yesterday? You mean Kreuzerkaliog, where the children came from? No, it goes more to the north. Ah, I've never been that way. They went into the house, and Dyson shut himself up in his room, sunk deep in doubtful thought, but yet with the shadow of a suspicion growing within him that for a while haunted his brain, all vague and fantastic, refusing to take definite form. He was sitting by the open window and looking out on the valley and saw, as if in a picture, the intricate winding of the brook, the grey bridge, and the vast hills rising beyond, all still and without a breath of wind to stir the mystic hanging woods, and the evening sunshine glowed warm on the bracken, and down below a faint mist, pure white, began to rise from the stream. Dyson sat by the window as the day darkened, and the huge bastioned hills loomed vast and vague, and the woods became dim and more shadowy and the fancy that had seized him no longer appeared altogether impossible. He passed the rest of the evening in a reverie, hardly hearing what Vaughan said, and when he took his candle in the hall, he paused a moment before bidding his friend good night. I want a good rest, he said. I've got some work to do tomorrow. Some writing, you mean? No. I'm going to look for the bowl. The bowl? If you mean my punch bowl, that is safe in my chest. I don't mean the punch bowl. You may take my word for it that your plate has never been threatened. No, I will not bother you with any suppositions. We shall, in all probability, have something much stronger than suppositions before long. Good night, Vaughan. The next morning, Dyson set off after breakfast. He took the path by the garden wall and noted that there were now eight of the weird almond eyes dimly outlined on the brick. Six days more, he said to himself. But as he thought over the theory he had formed, he shrank, in spite of strong conviction, from such a wildly incredible fancy. He struck up through the dense shadows of the wood, and at length came out on the bare hillside and climbed higher and higher over the slippery turf, keeping well to the north and following the indications given to him by Vaughan. As he went on, he seemed to mount ever higher above the world of human life and customary things. To his right, he looked at a fringe of orchard and saw a faint blue smoke rising like a pillar. There was the hamlet from which children came to school, and there the only sign of life, for the woods embowered and concealed Vaughan's old grey house. As he reached what seemed the summit of the hill, he realised, for the first time, the desolate loneliness and strangeness of the land. There was nothing but grey sky and grey hill a high, vast plain that seemed to stretch on for ever and ever, and a faint glimpse of a blue-peaked mountain far away to the north. At length he came to the path, a slight track, scarcely noticeable, 
and from its position, and by what Vaughan had told him, he knew that it was the way the lost girl, Annie Trevor, must have taken. He followed the path on the bare hilltop, noticing the great limestone rocks that cropped out of the turf, grim and hideous, and of an aspect as forbidding as an idol of the South Seas. And suddenly he halted, astonished, although he had found what he searched for. Almost without warning, the ground shelved suddenly away on all sides, and Dyson looked down into a circular depression, which might well have been a Roman amphitheatre, and the ugly crags of limestone rimmed it round as if with a broken wall. Dyson walked round the hollow and noted the position of the stones, and then turned on his way home. This, he thought to himself, is more than curious. The bowl is discovered. But where is the pyramid? My dear Vaughan, he said when he got back, I may tell you that I have found the bowl, and that is all I shall tell you for the present. We have six days of absolute inaction before us. There is really nothing to be done. I have just been round the garden, said Vaughan one morning. I have been counting those infernal eyes, and I find there are fourteen of them. For heaven's sake, Dyson, tell me what the meaning of it all is. I should be very sorry to attempt to do so. I may have guessed this or that, but I always make it a principle to keep my guesses to myself. Besides, it's not really worth while anticipating events. You remember me telling you that we had six days of inaction before us. Well, this is the sixth day, and the last of idleness. Tonight, I propose we take a stroll. A stroll? Is that all the action you mean to take? Well, it may show you some very curious things. To be plain, I want you to start with me at nine o'clock this evening for the hills. But we may have to be out all night, so you had better wrap up well and bring some of that brandy. Is it a joke? asked Vaughan, who was bewildered with strange events and strange surmises. No, I don't think there's much joke in it. Unless I'm much mistaken, we shall find a very serious explanation of the puzzle. You'll come with me, I'm sure. Very good. Uh, which way do you want to go? By the path you told me of, the path Annie Trevor is supposed to have taken. Vaughan looked white at the mention of the girl's name. I, I didn't think you were on that track, he said. I thought it was the affair of those devices in Flint and of the eyes on the wall that you were engaged on. It's no good saying any more but I will go with you. At a quarter to nine that evening, the two men set out, taking the path through the wood and up the hillside. It was a dark and heavy night. The sky was thick with clouds and the valley full of mist, and all the way they seemed to walk in a world of shadow and gloom, hardly speaking and afraid to break the haunted silence. They came out at last on the steep hillside, and instead of the oppression of the wood, 
there was the long, dim sweep of the turf, and higher, the fantastic limestone rocks hinted horror to the darkness, and the wind sighed as it passed across the mountains to the sea, and in its passage beat chill about their hearts. They seemed to walk on and on for hours, and the dim outline of the hills still stretched before them, and the haggard rocks still loomed through the darkness, when suddenly Dyson whispered, drawing his breath quickly and coming close to his companion. Here, he said, we will lie down. I do not think there is anything yet. I know the place, said Vaughan, after a moment. I've often been by in the daytime. The country people are afraid to come here. I believe it is supposed to be a fairy's castle or something of the kind. But why on earth have we come here? Speak a little lower, said Dyson. It might not do us any good if we're overheard. Overheard here? There's not a soul within three miles of us. Possibly not. Indeed, I should... I should say, certainly not. But there may be a body somewhat nearer. I don't understand you in the least, said Vaughan, whispering to humour Dyson. But why have we come here? Well, you see this hollow before us is the bowl. I think we had better not talk, even in whispers. They lay full length upon the turf, the rock between their faces and the bowl, and now and again Dyson, slouching his dark soft hat over his forehead, put out the glint of an eye, and in a moment drew back, not daring to take a prolonged view, and the faint sigh of the wind was the only sound. Vaughan grew impatient with this heaviness of silence, this watching for indefinite terror. For to him, there was no shape or form of apprehension. And he began to think the whole vigil a dreary farce. How much longer is this to last, he whispered to Dyson. And Dyson, who had been holding his breath in the agony of attention, put his mouth to Vaughan's ear and said, Will you listen? with pauses between each syllable, and in the voice which the priest pronounces the awful words. Vaughan caught the ground with his hands and stretched forward, wondering what he was to hear. At first, there was nothing. And then, a low and gentle noise came very soft from the bowl, a faint sound, almost indescribable, but as if one held the tongue against the roof of the mouth and expelled the breath. He listened eagerly, and presently the noise grew louder and became a strident and horrible hissing, as if the pit beneath boiled with fervent heat. And Vaughan, unable to remain in suspense any longer, drew his cap half over his face in imitation of Dyson, and looked down into the hollow below.
he did in truth stir and seethe like an infernal cauldron. The whole of the sides and the bottom tossed and writhed with vague and restless forms that passed to and fro without the sound of feet and gathered thick here and there and seemed to speak to one another in those tones of horrible sibilance like the hissing of snakes that he had heard. It was as if the sweet turf and the cleanly earth had suddenly become quickened with some foul, writhing growth. Vaughan couldn't draw back his face, though he felt Dyson's finger touch him, but he peered into the quaking mass and saw faintly that there were things like faces and human limbs. And yet he felt his inmost soul chill with the sure belief that no fellow soul or human thing stirred in all that tossing and hissing host. He looked aghast, choking back soaps of horror, and at length the loathsome forms gathered thickest about some vague object in the middle of the hollow, and the hissing of their speech grew more venomous, and he saw in the uncertain light the abominable limbs, vague and yet too plainly seen, writhe and intertwine. And he thought he heard, very faint, a low human moan striking through the noise of speech that was not of man. At his heart, something seemed to whisper ever the worm of corruption, the worm that dieth not. And grotesquely, the image was pictured to his imagination of a piece of putrid offal stirring through and through with bloated and horrible creeping things. The writhing of the dusky limbs continued. They seemed clustered around the dark form in the middle of the hollow, and the sweat dripped and poured off Vaughan's forehead and fell cold on his hand beneath his face. Then it seemed done in an instant. The loathsome mass melted and fell away to the size of the bowl, and for a moment Vaughan saw in the middle of the hollow the tossing of human arms. But a spark gleamed beneath, a fire kindled, and as the voice of a woman cried out loud in a shrill scream of utter anguish and terror, a great pyramid of flame spired up like a bursting of a pent fountain and threw a blaze of light upon the whole mountain. In that instant, Vaughan saw the myriads beneath the things made in the form of men, but stunted like children hideously deformed. The faces with the almond eyes burning with evil and unspeakable lusts. The ghastly yellow of the mass of naked flesh. And then, as if by magic, 
the place was empty, while the fire roared and crackled and the flames shone abroad. You have seen the pyramid, said Dyson in his ear. The pyramid of fire. Then you recognise the thing. Certainly, it's a brooch that Annie Trevor used to wear on Sundays. I remember the pattern. But where did you find it? You don't mean to say that you've discovered the girl? My dear Vaughan, I wonder you have not guessed where I found the brooch. You have not forgotten last night already. Dyson, said the other, speaking very seriously. I've been turning it over in my mind this morning while you have been out. I have thought about what I saw, or perhaps I should say about what I thought I saw, and the only conclusion I can come to is this, that the thing won't bear recollection. As men live, I have lived soberly and honestly in the fear of God all my days, and all I can do is believe that I suffered from some monstrous delusion, from some phantasmagoria of the bewildered senses. You know, when we went home together in silence, not a word passed between us as to what I fancied I saw. Had we not better agree to keep silence on the subject? When I took my walk in the peaceful morning sunshine, I thought all the earth seemed full of praise. In passing by that wall, I noticed that there were no more signs recorded, and I blotted out those that remained. The mystery is over, and we can live quietly again. I think some poison has been working for the last few weeks. I have trod on the verge of madness, but I'm sane now. Mr Vaughan had spoken earnestly and bent forward in his chair and glanced at Dyson with something of entreaty. My dear Vaughan, said the other after a pause, what's the use of this? It's much too late to take that tone. We've gone too deep. Besides, you know, as well as I, that there is no delusion in the case. I wish there were with all my heart. No, in justice to myself, I must tell you the whole story as far as I know it. Very good, said Vaughan with a sigh. If you must, you must. Then, said Dyson, we will begin with the end, if you please. I found this brooch that you have just identified in the place we have called the bowl. There was a heap of grey ashes, as if a fire had been burning. Indeed, the embers were still hot, and this brooch was lying on the ground, just outside the range of the flame. It must have dropped accidentally from the dress of the person who was wearing it. No, don't interrupt me. We can pass now to the beginning, as we have had the end. Let us go back to that day you came to see me in my rooms in London. So far as I can remember, soon after you came in, you mentioned in a somewhat casual manner that an unfortunate and mysterious incident had occurred in your part of the country. A girl named Annie Trevor had gone to see a relative and had disappeared. I confess freely that what you said did not greatly interest me. There are so many reasons which may make it extremely convenient for a man, and more especially a woman, to vanish from the circle of their relations and friends. I suppose if we were to consult the police, one would find 
that in London somebody disappears mysteriously every other week and the officers would no doubt shrug their shoulders and tell you that by the law of averages it could not be otherwise. So he was very culpably careless to your story. And besides, there is another reason for my lack of interest. Your tale is inexplicable. You could only suggest a blackguard sailor on the tramp, but I discarded that explanation immediately. For many reasons, but chiefly because the occasional criminal, the amateur in brutal crime, is always found out, especially if he selects the country as the scene of his operations. You will remember that the case of that Garcia you mentioned, he strolled into a railway station the day after the murder, his trousers covered in blood and the works of the Dutch clock, his loot tied in a neat parcel. So rejecting this, your only suggestion, the whole tale became, as I say, inexplicable and therefore profoundly uninteresting. Yes, therefore, it is a perfectly valid conclusion. Do you ever trouble your head about problems which you know to be insoluble? Did you ever bestow much thought on the old puzzle of Achilles and the tortoise? Of course not, because you knew it was a hopeless quest. I was mistaken, so it has turned out, but if you remember, you immediately passed on to an affair which interested you more intensely, because personally. I need not go over the very singular narrative of the flint signs. At first, I thought it all trivial, probably some children's game, and if not that, a hoax of some sort. But your showing me the arrowhead awoke my acute interest. Here I saw there was something widely removed from the commonplace, and a matter of real curiosity. And as soon as I came here, I set to work to find the solution, repeating to myself again and again the signs that you had described. First came the sign we have agreed to call the army. A number of serried lines of flints all pointing the same way. Then the lines, like the spokes of a wheel, all converging towards the figure of a bowl. Then the triangle or pyramid. And last of all, the half moon. I confess that I exhausted conjecture in my efforts to unveil this mystery, as you will understand it was a duplex or rather triplex problem. For I had not merely to ask myself what do these figures mean, but also who can possibly be responsible for the designing of them, and again who can possibly possess such valuable things, and knowing their value thus throw them down by the wayside. This line of thought led me to suppose that the person or persons in question did not know the value of unique flint arrowheads. And yet, this did not lead me far, for a well-educated man might easily be ignorant on such a subject. Then there came the complication of the eye on the wall. And you remember that we couldn't avoid the conclusion that in the two cases the same agency was at work. The peculiar position of these eyes on the wall made me inquire if there was such a thing as a dwarf anywhere in the neighbourhood, but I found there was not. And I knew that the children who passed by every day had nothing to do with the matter. Yet, 
I felt convinced that whoever drew the eyes must be from three and a half to four feet high, since, as I pointed out at the time, anyone who draws on a perpendicular surface chooses by instinct a spot about level with his face. Then again, there was the question of the peculiar shape of the eyes, that marked Mongolian character of which the English countrymen could have no conception. And for a final cause of confusion, the obvious fact that the designer or designers must be able practically to see in the dark. As you remarked, a man who has been confined for many years in an extremely dark cell or dungeon might acquire that power. But since the days of Edmund Dantes, where would such a prison be found in Europe? A sailor who had been immured for a considerable period in some horrible Chinese oubliette seemed the individual I was in search of, and though it looked improbable, it was not absolutely impossible that a sailor, or, let us say, a man employed on shipboard, should be a dwarf. But how to account for my imaginary sailor being in possession of prehistoric arrowheads? And the possession granted, what was the meaning and object of those mysterious signs of flint? and the almond-shaped eyes. Your theory of contemplated burglary I saw nearly from the first to be quite untenable. And I confess, I was utterly at a loss for a working hypothesis. It was a mere accident which put me on the track. We passed old Trevor, and your mention of his name and of the disappearance of his daughter recalled a story which I had forgotten or which remained it unheeded. Here, then, I said to myself, is another problem. Uninteresting, it is true, by itself. But what if it proved to be in relation with all these enigmas which torture me? I shut myself in my room and endeavoured to dismiss all prejudice from my mind, and I went over everything de novo, assuming, for theory's sake, that the disappearance of Annie Trevor had some connection with the flint signs and the eyes on the wall. This assumption did not lead me very far, and I was on the point of giving the whole problem up in despair when a possible significance of the bowl struck me. As you know, there's a devil's punch bowl in Surrey, and I saw that the symbol might refer to some feature in the country. Putting the two extremes together, I determined to look for the bone of the path which the lost girl had taken, and you know how I found it. I interpreted the sign by which what I knew, and I read the first of the army thus. There is to be a gathering or assembly at the bowl in a fortnight, that is, the half moon, to see the pyramid, or to build the pyramid. The eyes, drawn one by one, day by day, evidently checked off the days, and I knew that there would be fourteen, and no more. Thus far, the way seemed pretty plain. I would not trouble myself to inquire as to the nature of the assembly, or as to who was to assemble in the loneliest and most dreaded place among these lonely hills. In Ireland, or China, or the west of America, the question would have been easily answered, a muster of the disaffected, the meeting of a secret society, vigilantes summoned to report. The thing will be simplicity itself. 
But in this quiet corner of England, inhabited by quiet folk, no such suppositions were possible for a moment. But I knew that I should have an opportunity of seeing and watching the assembly, and I did not care to perplex myself with hopeless research, and in place of reasoning, a wild fancy entered into judgment. I remembered what people had said about Annie Trevor's disappearance, that she had been taken by the fairies. I tell you, Vaughan, I am a sane man as you are. My brain is not, I trust, a mere vacant space to let to any wild improbability, and I tried my best to thrust the fantasy away. And the hint came of the old name of the fairies, the little people, and the very probable belief that they represent a tradition of the prehistoric Turanian inhabitants of the country who were cave dwellers. And then I realised with a shock that I was looking for a being under four feet in height, accustomed to live in darkness, possessing stone instruments, and familiar with the Mongolian cast of features. I say this, Vaughan, that I should be ashamed to hint at such a visionary stuff to you, if it were not for the fact that what would you saw with your very own eyes last night, and I say that I might doubt the evidence of my senses if they were not confirmed by yours. But you and I cannot look each other in the face and pretend delusion. As you lay on the turf beside me, I felt your flesh shrink and quiver, and I saw your eyes in the light of the flame. And so, I tell you without any shame what was in my mind last night as we went through the wood and climbed the hill and lay hidden beneath the rock. There was one thing that should have been most evident that puzzled me to the very last. I told you how I read the sign of the pyramid. The assembly was to see a pyramid, and the true meaning of the symbol escaped me to the last moment. The old derivation from up fire, though false, should have set me on the track. But it never occurred to me. I think I need to say very little more. You know, we were quite helpless, even if we had foreseen what was to come. Ah, the particular place where these signs were displayed. That is a curious question. But this house is, so far as I can judge, in a pretty central situation amongst the hills, and possibly, who can say yes or no, that queer old limestone pillar by your garden wall was a place of meeting before the Celt set foot in Britain. But there is one thing I must add. I don't regret our inability to rescue the wretched girl, you saw the appearance of those things that gathered thick and writhed in the bowl. You may be sure that what lay bound in the midst of them was no longer fit for the earth. So, said Vaughan, so she passed in the pyramid of fire, said Dyson, and they passed again to the underworld, to the places beneath the hills. The end.
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?